as we're continuing in our current teaching series, a series called Together. We're learning about the gospel in our relationships for the last few weeks and continuing to the first week in September. Throughout the study in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, we have been learning by going through the scriptures about maintaining healthy and satisfying and reconciled gospel-centered relationships. And we've been very honest about our relationships the last couple of weeks. We've talked about how there is no such thing as a struggle-free relationship. It just doesn't exist. All of us are fallen. We all have our flaws. We live in a corrupted world. And thus, our relationships are equally corrupted. And so it's just not possible on this side of heaven for us to have struggle-free relationships. There are exactly no exceptions to this truth. Now, what can happen to us, though, is whenever we have struggles, and I say when because, like we're saying, it's not if, it's when we have struggles, especially with those that we love, what we tend to want to do is to fix the struggles. We want to fix the situation, especially men. We love fixing things, don't we? Now, I don't actually fix things in the house. I just I go knock on Mohammed's door and say, hey, Mohammed, the toilet won't stop running. And I mean, I could maybe fix it, but not likely. Um, and so I might not be able to fix things in the house, but I want to fix people, or I want to fix situations, or I want to fix relationships that are broken. And I'm sure that you've done the same thing. Whenever things are not going well, you want to get your spiritual hammer, your relational screwdriver, and try to fix what's going on. But let me ask you this, how often does it go well when you try to fix a person, when you try to change or control a person? Yeah, that works really well exactly never. It doesn't go well. And I'm sure if it took some time to share stories, we could all talk about occasions when we have tried to fix a person, and it just doesn't work. We are unable to change hearts. You and I, we can't even change our own hearts, much less your spouse. You can't change your wife or your husband. That is the work of God, the work of His Spirit. He is the one that can actually change people. And so some of us have said, okay, well, I've tried trying to fix people or manage situations, and I've learned my lesson. It doesn't work. And so we, we turn to God, and as we should. And so we should turn to God and say, God, I leave it in your hands. You have to fix this. But what's so crazy is for us humans, even in our sinful state, when we approach God, even that at times we can corrupt. And we approach God, and and we kind of say, maybe not out loud, but we're certainly thinking to ourselves that God exists to fix my problems and to make sure that I'm comfortable and to meet all of my needs and we approach God as though he exists exclusively to make me comfortable and happy and we we subtly think to ourselves God I know all the changes in my life that have to happen this is wrong this is wrong she's wrong he's a mess this needs to change and so we devise a plan and we think God I already know everything that you need to change And so, God, I try to be good. I'm trying to really follow you. And so now, God, I need you to go and change these things for me. It doesn't work that way. 
God doesn't take orders from you or me. He is the king. He is the sovereign. And he has a plan. And he is doing something in your life. And it might not be according to your agenda or mine or my thoughts or yours. Because our thoughts are not his. And so we can't approach God with our preconceived notions. And what we can do is say, okay, God, I have my whole life planned out. I know exactly how it should work and what you need to address. So now, God, I'm praying. So now, therefore, you should go and do it. It doesn't work that way. See, what exactly is God accomplishing in your life? That's a question that we need to seriously consider. What is it that God is actually doing in your life and in mine? In our text today out of Ephesians 4, we're going to see what it is that God is up to in our lives. And let's begin by reading verses 17 and 18. Again, we're in Ephesians 4, continuing verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul, as inspired by the Spirit of God, writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so the apostle says that he's testifying in the Lord. So he is inspired by God's spirit, and he's writing about God's purposes. And then he says, you must no longer do what? You must no longer walk as Gentiles. Gentile was a general term for anyone that was a non-Jew, a Greek. Basically what he's saying in this context is those that don't know God, those that are far from God, who have not repented or believed in the gospel. Those that he says are darkened and have futile, useless, stinking thinking. Futile thinking. So what he's saying here is that they are darkened in their understanding. He's describing people who have rejected the gospel, who don't believe in Jesus. He says that they're ignorant. He's using pretty harsh language for them. And he says that they reject the truth of God's love and who God is as king. They reject him. Why? It says their hardness of heart. So their hearts are hard. And so he's describing here in these two verses that people who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, who refuse to repent and believe in the gospel, it says they're alienated from the life of God. It says that they are separated from God. They're alienated. They're isolated. They're far away from. They're not close to God. They don't know Jesus. They may have the appearance of it. They may have a religion, but they don't actually know Jesus. They're alienated from him. What about us? Left to ourselves, left to myself, if we're honest, every one of us would be lost in our sin. And we would be, as described here, useless in our thinking. And we would be in darkness with hard hearts that willfully reject God. But God is merciful. God is so merciful to you and to me. He's so good to us that he has a plan that is much bigger than the plan that you and I would have for our own lives. He has a vision for your life that is much grander and more significant than anything you could ever imagine. 
His plan is redemption. God's plan is not to simply make minor changes that you or I would want God to make in our lives to be more comfortable. God's plan is eternal. It displays His glory in redemption. He sent His Son to this earth to be the perfect human being, the perfect sacrifice, to die in your place and in mine. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the holy wrath of God. He has maintained the law and upheld God's righteousness. And on the cross, you see the absolute collision of God's holiness and God's love, His mercy. And He has been merciful to you in sending Jesus so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have freedom from your sin that would threaten to keep you in bondage and shackled and living in fear or in darkness or with anxiety. He has come to liberate us. He has come to show that God is glorious. And he does it, crucified, resurrected, and giving us his holy presence as his spirit lives in believers completely, as we'll see in this text, transforming us from the inside out. So God's plan is not to make us more comfortable. God's plan is not to make the little minor tweaks that we would think with our little vision. God has a much grander vision for your life. And what God is doing with Christ crucified and resurrected is he's saving for himself a people that indwelt by his Holy Spirit will begin to reflect him, that will have purity and holiness. As it, as it says here in this text, that he is righteous. As it says, as we'll look a little bit more closely in the verses continuing, he has saved us for righteousness and holiness, as it says in verse 24. So before we jump in any further and keep reading on, let's get the main idea so that we understand this text and where we're going. Because we're going somewhere this morning. I want you to follow me, track with me. If you're taking notes, then I want you to understand that God is calling us to purity. He's making us like himself, holy and righteous. And so this is a call to purity. We've seen in Ephesians 4 so far a call to unity. Last week a call to diversity. Today, a call to purity. The main idea for today is that the gospel creates purity in our relationships. So the gospel is what creates purity. And so the theme of this whole chapter is relationships. That's what the series is called, Together. We're learning to pursue Christ together, become who he wants us to be in community. And it is a very gospel that has saved us that then creates in us pure hearts, and that gives us sound and healthy relationships. So the gospel is what creates purity in our relationships. And the rest of Ephesians 4 that we'll look at today and in a couple of weeks allows us to see what that looks like, what relationships for you and me look like when God's purposes are ruling in our lives. So what your marriage can look like, your coworkers, with your parents, all your relationships are described in Ephesians 4 of what it will look like when God's really ruling in your life and be marked by purity. Now, Ephesians 4 describes seven sinful tendencies, seven tendencies that you have and that I have because we're human. And so he goes systematically in this text 
and he describes seven specific sinful tendencies that we're all tempted to give ourselves to. Today we'll look at the first four and the last three when we conclude the series in a couple of weeks. And so what we're going to look at is in the mirror. We're going to look at ourselves and see, well, where is it? Which of these tendencies am I most given to? Because you're, you're going to see them because we're all human. It's important that as you look at these sinful tendencies and how God plans to redeem you and how God's plan is to make you more holy and have more purity, that you look in the mirror. It's going to be very easy today and next time for us to look at our wife and say, oh, she needs to hear this and nudge her whenever you hear something in the text. But don't do that. Don't think about other people. Don't think about, well, so-and-so needs to hear this. Ask, where does God want you to submit to him and let God change you and produce more purity in your life? And where do you need to continue to conquer among these seven specific sinful tendencies so that God can transform your life and make you more like himself? So number one, the first sinful tendency that God desires to restore. He wants to transform and make you more pure in your relationships. The first one is selfish pleasures. We are all tempted with this tendency towards having selfish pleasures. We see it in verse 19. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So he is saying that those that don't have Jesus have callous hearts, that they're hard and don't even feel anything spiritually. And they've given themselves to sensuality, to greed, and practicing all kinds of impurity. Okay, well, he's describing those that don't know Christ, but what about you and me? What about if you're here today and you have received Christ? He is your master. You are a true follower of Jesus. Not this cultural Christianity that's not even true Christianity. I'm talking about repented, truly indwelt by the Spirit, and you're pursuing Christ. You're a true Christian. What about us? Well, he describes those of us in verses 20 through 24. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your formal manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, this, by the way, is one sentence, a very long, profound, it's a deep, theologically rich sentence. We can spend hours on just this one sentence, but we won't clearly. But here's what he's saying. He is saying that even those that are believers in Christ have to do what? It says, this is not the way you've learned in Christ. It's like you're a believer. You've learned about Jesus. You're following him. And so you must not be like those that don't know Jesus. He says, you were taught in the truth that is in Jesus. Well, taught what? What have we been taught? What does it mean to follow Jesus? As believers in Jesus, we're to do what? Put off your old self, he says. He says, what is your old self? Your former manner of life. It says, corrupt with deceitful desires. He says, instead of, of living in this corruption with deceitful desires that are selfish, Instead, he says, put on the new self after the likeness of God, he says. And what is God like? We just read it. True righteousness and holiness. So that is what we must reflect. You 
are a mirror. And you and I are created to mirror, to reflect Jesus. After all, we are his image bearers. We do bear his image. And so therefore, we must put off the old self, put on the new, and thus have righteousness and holiness. We are called here to living lives of purity. So what we see here in this text is that believers in Jesus have the ability and the calling. So we can and we must. Ability and the calling to live a pure life before God and for his glory. So believers in Jesus have his Holy Spirit living inside of them. There's a new nature with new desires that he calls here the new self, where it's not a have-to religion that's not slavery. It's a heart that is changed. Now we desire, we want to please Jesus and to have his character every day. And so here's the problem, though. If we're really honest, here's the problem. We still enjoy sin. We do. Now, no one likes saying that out loud, but we all have that pet sin that we go back to that maybe you enjoy a little bit too much. We're all sinful. We're not in heaven yet. We're not glorified yet. And so we have this calling and the empowering of God's Spirit to live lives of purity, but we're not holy yet. We have to have this daily battle against our selfish desires. We have an old self that is indeed selfish, that is opposed, that is in opposition to delighting in Jesus. And your old self, your flesh, would drive you to delight in, to please yourself. And every one of us has this propensity where we desire to please ourself and do what is most comfortable and what's most pleasant for us. We're all wired that way. To find joy, to find comfort and hope and meaning in the things that this world would have to offer us rather than to find hope and satisfaction and joy in Christ. Let me ask you a key question for each of these four tendencies. So for this one, for our tendency towards selfish pleasures, here's, here's a key question is, how does it affect your relationships? And we're going to ask that for all four of these, okay? So how do selfish pleasures affect your relationships? Married, any relationship, how, how does it affect? Well, we have a, a desire to define our relationships by what we want, not God's purpose. So the problem with giving in to selfish pleasures is that we define our relationships by what we want and not what God wants. And so if we're being selfish, both men and women do this in their marriage. Women, a, a woman, if she's honest, when she's walking in the flesh, what is it that women want in marriage most? Well, I would say, I talked to my wife, and my thoughts were confirmed yesterday, that women tend to want societal status. A lot of ladies want to get married because, well, if they don't, they're going to look bad. And in society's eyes, it's like a rite of passage, and you ought to, you should be married. So a lot of women desire marriage because of societal status or financial security. There's a lot of women that their main agenda with getting married is, well, I want to have security. 
But let's be too hard on our, our ladies, men. A lot of men approach marriage just because they want sexual pleasure. And they think, foolishly, that by getting married, it's, it's going to be this ongoing sexual experience every day, and that's just not reality. However, there are other guys that maybe it's not the sexual fantasy. They pursue marriage because they want what I might call domestic ease. You know, you get married, and like I, I haven't cooked a meal other than making sandwiches in I don't know how many years. And I'll be honest, I haven't washed, I haven't done laundry. Oh, man, I don't even know when I lasted laundry. It was crazy. Bonnie was gone for two weeks. A lot of you know this. And I didn't do laundry the whole two weeks. It was like, okay, do I have enough shirts and enough underwear and enough socks? Can, oh, I can't wear socks today because I run out of socks. I have to wear flip-flops today. And, and it was like I was doing everything I could to survive two weeks while maintaining hygiene, which I did for the record, but nonetheless, without having to do any laundry. I didn't want to go to the third floor. And actually, I was like, oh, I don't want to go up there. It's hot. I don't want to mess with it. I don't even know how to use the machine. And so a lot of guys approach marriage, and what they really want, if they're really honest, is comfort. And women, in their own ways, want it too. And we approach our relationships with, what can I get from you? What is it from you that I can leverage? And it's not just in marriage. We meet people and think, oh, well, he's a pilot. I'll become his friend. Maybe I can get some tickets. That's not what relationships are about. It is not what you get from people. You value the relationship because it is a gift from your Father in heaven. And when we are selfish and when we give in to our old selves and when we are living for our selfish pleasures, what happens is we define our relationships by what I want not God's purpose, which is to make you more holy. Listen, your marriage is not to make you more happy. Your marriage does not exist to make you happy. Your marriage exists to make you holy, to make you more like Christ, which is, what does it say in verse 24? True righteousness and holiness. That is why you're married, to have true righteousness and holiness, to have purity, to reflect the beauty and image of Christ every single day and reflect that for everyone around to see so that they can repent and believe in the gospel and worship the one true God that we know and enjoy every day. And so we must not, we cannot approach our relationships on what can I extort, what can I get from you. It is evil and contrary to God's purposes. You see, we must focus on serving. What can I do for my wife? How can I serve her? Not how can she serve me? How can I serve? How can I be like Jesus and serve rather than be served? We must be other-centered, not self-centered. If you want one word, you're kind of cheating, it's too hyphenated. 
one word hyphenated that describes this problem with our souls will be self-indulgence. That's what we want. We want to indulge in what it is that we enjoy. But we must not feed the old self. We must indulge in Christ, indulge in the scriptures, and spend time meditating on him. Because how is it? What must we do? Because here's the problem. If you've ever been in a funk, when I say been in a funk, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just kind of down. I don't want to serve my wife. I don't want to serve my kids. I just feel kind of blah. Anyone feel that way? Is it just me, really? Liars. And you're just kind of down. And you're, it's like you're in the dark, and you're trying to find this switch because you can't see. And you can't find a switch, and you want to just switch yourself on and stop feeling down. But there's no switch. There's no switch for you to just flip, and all of a sudden you have joy. It doesn't work that way. It must come from somewhere deep within. There's no switch to flip. What must happen? What must you do in order to desire to serve others and not be served? What must you do to desire purity? What does he say here in verse 23? That's the key that we must manage here. And he says that we experience purity. How? Believers must be, he says, renewed in the spirit of your minds. We must be renewed in the spirit of your minds which, by the way, is in stark contrast with verse 17. He says those that don't have Jesus, those who don't have the Spirit, those who are lost have what? Futility of their minds. Their minds are useless, he says, whereas believers' minds are useful for what? For being renewed. We must cultivate minds that love and we can do this because of the spirit that lives inside of us. We can. Listen, this is important. The Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is a battle, especially living out here. Spiritual warfare is more intense. The stakes are higher. There's maybe a cost for telling others about Jesus. It's a battle. It's a battle for the mind. It's a daily battle for our hearts and our imaginations to be captivated with Christ. It's a daily battle where we must rely on God's grace, and we need His grace every single day. You must spend time, it says, in your mind, meditating. You must spend time reading God's Word, but then thinking, intentionally thinking and processing and pondering and considering and applying it to you and praying it back to him. Spend time with Christ. If you don't pray and meditate, then you have no hope, no hope of having a life of joy because this world is going to beat you up and suck you dry, especially out here. We must be renewed by our minds. We must spend time meditating with Christ and drawing close to him. It is the only way that is what will fuel your desires to be more pure and to serve. There's no, flip, there's no switch to flip, rather. But when we're cultivating a heart that loves Christ, that becomes the fire and the furnace of your soul. 
that will allow you to live lives of purity and worship. And so what is the solution here? Meditate on the gospel. Specifically, as you meditate on the gospel, is recognize that God's plan is much wiser than our own plan for our lives. Meditate on that regularly. When we find ourselves wanting to control and to devise our own plan for our lives and even turn to our selfish pleasures, it's important that we meditate and we think about Jesus and how his plan for your life is much wiser than your plan for your own life. Submit to God and he will heal your relationships. Let's move quickly before it's lunchtime. We have three more to get to. The next one, the next sinful tendency is deceitfulness. We could put dishonesty, same thing. The second one is deceitfulness or dishonesty. Verse 25, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He says, put away falsehood and speak the truth, for we belong to each other. So he's saying, get rid of it. Stop the lies. Stop the falsehood. Be honest with one another. We belong to each other. If you're married, you belong to one another. And even if you're not married, you're part of a faith family, and you belong to us. And if you're a guest today, we are so thrilled that you would join us today to worship with our faith family. What's going to sound crazy to you is many of our members are still gone. And so in the next two, three weeks, you're going to come up to the front because you're not going to find any seats back there. But you belong to one another, and we want you to belong. We want you to come to Abu Dhabi, come to this faith family, and feel as though we care about you, and you belong, and we care about your soul, and we want to see you pursue purity and become the man or the woman that God wants you to be, and we do it together. But lies and deception will sabotage relationships quicker than most other things will. If we're applying it to your marriage specifically, deceitfulness can take the place, the form of hiding. Sometimes you're not lying as in you're not saying anything that's not true, but you're hiding things, and that's still deception. That's still falsehood. And so in your marriage, are you hiding anything from your husband or your wife? Are you dishonest? If you feel the need to hide things, if you're hiding things from people, specifically in your marriage, but in general, falsehood, if we're hiding things, it is a sign of unhealth. It is a sign that you're not really doing very well spiritually. I'm not saying you're lost and going to hell. I'm not saying that. You have a cold spiritually. You need to get some medicine. You need to get some help. You need to get some rest. But specifically spiritually, if you're hiding things, you're not healthy. It's false. It's just put it away. You need to come out of the darkness, which is where falsehood breeds, and come into the light where there's truth. Jesus is the truth, and he is the light. And so we must come out of the darkness. You will not have healthy relationships if you stay in the darkness hiding. It won't happen. You must love the truth, love the light, and hate the darkness. So I'll ask you the key question for this tendency of falsehood is, how does deceitfulness, how does hiding, how does dishonesty, how does it affect your relationships? Well, what we, what we tend to do is we will manipulate truth. 
to get what we want out of the relationship. Again, this is a sinful tendency. So it's always self-focused. It's sinful. And so what we will do is manipulate truth and control things in order to put ourselves in the best position so that we win arguments and we get our way all the time. And we know that we're being dishonest. We know that we're manipulating. We know that we're hiding things. But we, we make sure that we present ourselves in such a way that we're hiding what we don't want our spouse to know, that we're hiding behind our back, and we're manipulating the truth so we can get what it is that we want. And I'm sure if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. How all of us can be tempted to do this for our selfish gain. But what is the solution? Meditating on the gospel. Again, faith and repentance. You see, what we need to do is spend time contemplating in Jesus that the truth is what transforms our hearts. Jesus says that he is the truth, and it's the truth that sets us free. And so you will be in bondage if you're hiding and lying. And so in order to maintain health spiritually, relationally, we must be honest and contemplate how it is the truth that will transform your heart. I would encourage you, if this is one of your struggles, to come clean before God. Ask God to forgive you. But then, go to the person you're hiding from or deceiving, whoever that person is, and ask him or her to forgive you. And it's going to get ugly. Nothing is going to be pretty whenever you come out with it. But that's where the process of healing will begin. When that which is ugly and hidden comes into the light. Now we can clean it, now we can repent, and move forward. We call it the purity. The third tendency that we can struggle with is anger. So we have selfish pleasures, we have deceitfulness, now we have anger. Verses 26 through 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, anger is a human emotion, all right? Anger is not necessarily sin. So it says here that you can be angry and not sin, but if we're consumed by our anger, then that's when we're sinning. If we're driven by it, if, if we don't let it go and it begins to fester in our hearts, if we have these explosions of anger, that's a problem. And so one thing that I've learned while living out here in the Redden Peninsula for a little over a year now that there's this big animal called a camel. And I had never actually seen camels up front when I was in Texas. But now I've kind of been around them a little, not that much, but you know, here in the zoo or on safaris or whatever. And so I've, I've had a chance to see how camels are kind of moody. It's really kind of funny. But camels really aren't the most mild-mannered, kind creatures that exist. They're actually quite temperamental. And I was reading this week, of how Bedouin camel drivers are going across the desert, they can sense when their camel is kind of getting upset. This is what they do. This is their life. And so they know when their camel is getting mad at them. And so in order to prevent this camel's explosion of anger, what the owner will do is he will actually take off his outer coat and he'll hand it to the camel. And the camel will get angry and he'll spit on it and he'll bite it and he'll stomp on the coat until it's all torn in shreds. And then, and then after this camel kind of has this, this temper tantrum and throws this fit in stomping his owner's coat, 
He's kind of over it. And they can kind of keep going on their journey. And so some of you are like camels. Some of you explode. Whenever you get angry, you lose your self-control. You have no more, forget control. You're just angry. You're yelling. And that's not good. We're told not to give Satan any grapple, any hook on you, no foothold. Don't even let Satan get close. But when we're angry, lose the self-control. Now Satan can come and tempt you to do even more evil. So he's saying you must not get angry. And here's what's so funny to me. I talk to people all the time that have anger issues. And they say, well, my wife, she makes me so mad. Ever, ever heard that phrase? Sure you have. And you know what I told guys when they say that? Liar. I'm sorry, but your wife doesn't make you mad. You choose to get mad. No one can make you get angry. When you, when you get angry, it's a choice. It's something that you have chosen to do. And so you must not confuse the occasion and the cause of your anger. There's a difference. Maybe your wife did something and then you exploded. Okay, well, what she did was only the occasion, not the cause. The cause is something much deeper, deep within your soul. And so what is the key question here? How does anger affect our relationships? Here's how it affects our relationships. You and I, through our anger, we will try to control the relationship by either venting anger or by holding it over the other person. And so by exploding, then what you're doing is you're using that explosion of anger to control the other person so you can get what it is that you want. It's like a two-year-old. No different. You see them at car four. They're yelling, and they're angry, and they want that candy bar. And they're stomping their feet. And what does a poor mom do? Quickly give him the candy bar so you would stop the temper tantrum. And then we grow up and we've mastered the art. Been doing it our whole lives. When we were little, now you're a big boy or a big girl and you're still doing it. Getting angry, throwing a fit, using your anger to then control the situation and the other person to get what it is that you selfishly desire. What causes us to get angry? Let's go a little bit deeper than the surface, all right? Let's not talk about the occasions for our anger. Name one for that. Anything can trigger anger. Not the occasion. Let's talk about the cause. What is it that causes us to get angry? You know what it is? When your idols are being threatened, you will respond with anger. Now, some people respond with anxiety or fear. That's not in today's text, but that is also one response is you get fearful or anxious when our idols are being threatened. But some people's, their temperament, the personality is when the idol is being threatened, they get angry. They want to defend their idol. They're going to come to the defense of that which gives them comfort, that which gives them hope and purpose. And every one of us, if we're honest, we all have idols. And we, we just sung an amazing song on there is no other treasure. I will serve no foreign God. An idol is that which you find your joy in. Whatever it is that you turn to for comfort when you're down. For some of you, it's food or shopping. 
or pornography or work. I don't know. Whatever you turn to when you're down, when you want to feel comforted, when you want joy, or when you want a sense of meaning, you, you turn to that which provides that for you, and that is your idols. And when our idols are being threatened, we respond, again, some with anxiety or fear, but a lot of people respond to idols being threatened with anger. And how dare you mention that? How dare you step on my toes? And how dare you even, don't go there. Well, why not? What are you protecting there? Very likely, it's an idol where you're turning to for comfort and security and joy. And the response in the scriptures for idols is destroy your idols. Cut them down. Burn them. Don't have idols. God wants you to turn to him for comfort. He wants him to turn, you to turn to him for joy and for meaning and for purpose. You should define yourself in light of who you are in Christ, not in light of your idols. And so we all have these propensities towards idols. And when we get angry, if we're honest, something is being threatened and we want to protect it and we must repent of that. So the solution is meditate on the gospel. Jesus' main desire was to please the Father, even to the point of death. Meditate on that. That our desire must be to please the Father, whatever it costs. No idols. We must truly worship God. Meditate on Jesus and his desire to please the Father. And it will help us to have the courage and the hope to destroy our idols and guess what happens to your anger? When you are destroying your idols, there's no more idol that's threatened, you're going to have far less anger. Also far less anxiety, but that's for a different message. Let's look at the fourth one. Let's look at the fourth sinful tendency that we all tend to struggle with, and it's self-interest. Self-interest. Verse 28, last verse for today. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, work hard. Don't steal and give. Share with those that are in need. So he says that we should work hard so that we can give and be generous. You see, those of us that follow Jesus should be the most generous people on the planet. There should be no one more generous than followers of Jesus. Why? Why should we be so generous? Because we realize how much God has given us, how much God has lavished upon us, and how much it cost him the life of his own son. And God sacrificed what's most dear to him for you and for me, rebellious sinners who are evil and corrupted. And he did that for you because he loves you, wants to display his glory and redemption. And so what happens here? is we want to mirror God's generosity. And so the gospel creates hearts that give extravagantly because our God gives extravagantly. So the gospel creates this purity. And we're not greedy. We want to give. And we're not worried about self-interest. We're worried about other interests, other people. So let me ask you, and I'm serious about this. What are you known for? If others would talk about you without you in the room. 
and you said, what is so-and-so known for? Would they say, oh, great Bible knowledge? Not a bad thing. Would they say, oh, he or she knows her theology? Or would they say, he or she is generous? Man, she's just so gracious. He's such a servant. Man, he's kind. I would rather be known for those virtues than for being a theologian. Because true theology, what it's looked like in real life, is loving the way Jesus did, giving the way he did. And so we are called to give, to not be concerned with self-interest. You know, I've been thinking about what relationships really are. You know, you have different people, especially our church, are so different, different backgrounds and, and different everything. And this week, it was interesting, having my first bride, my first South African, authentic, with the, uh, I couldn't remember all the names were, but, but it, was, it was really great to enjoy a traditional South African, full of meat on the table. It was awesome. I love meeting new people and trying new things. It's just such a joy. We talked about this last week on having diversity. That can also be challenging, but we're called to have unity in our diversity. When you talk about relationships and people that are different, what it really is, relationships are the intersection of two stories. Your life is a story. What you've been through, who you are, what you've learned, your baggage, your strengths, your weaknesses, everything about who you are is a story that God is telling for his glory. And then you meet someone else that has their story, their background, their experiences, their culture, their language, and then you have an intersection. But sometimes the intersections, guess what happens? You have collisions. Sometimes, especially here, at the intersections, you have car accidents. And so every now and then, your story and someone else's story is going to collide, and sparks are going to fly. But that's okay. Because when we're focused on self-interest, and we get angry about that, but if we're focused on others, and she'll say, okay, you know what? Well, that's different, but, but I, I love him or her because we have the same Father in heaven, and we want to have unity in the body. And an, another thing about intersections is sometimes you have to yield. Sometimes it's not your turn to go. Now, the word, the word yield or give way means very little to people here. It's crazy. You get a roundabout, and it's like, there's a sign right there that says yield, but people just go anyway. That's what we want to do. We, we, we want to just go in the intersection. But every now and then, it's your turn to hit the brakes and yield. It's not always about what's best for you. Not self-interest, others' interest. Yield. Be like Christ. And the solution is mentioned in the gospel. See, when we have self-interest, and so how does that affect our relationships? Well, what will happen is self-interest will allow you to want to protect what you have. So again, protect what you have rather than offer it to other people. You want to protect what you have and never share with others. Us four no more. And you deal for yourself, you fend for yourself, and I got my family, and you take care of yours, and there's no community there. And so what happens is you want to self-protect, and that's not going to open up meaningful relationships. Meditate on the gospel. Remember 
the joy of serving and meeting the needs of others. That's what Jesus did. Meditate on how Christ came to meet our needs and serve us and reflect that. As we close, I want to give you an example, a very current example that I'm sure if you follow the news that you've read this. If not, you, you need to be aware of this. We can be praying. An example, the current modern-day example of living for God's glory with no thought of self-interest, Matt and Grace Huang. They're an American couple from Asian descent. About a year ago, this young Christ-following couple moved to Qatar. They've adopted three children from Africa, from both Uganda and Ghana. And in January, eight months ago, their eight-year-old daughter, Gloria, died. Um, unexpectedly, unknown causes. And if you're curious, just Google Matt and Grace Doha. That's all you have to Google. You'll see about 20 hits. Matt and Grace Doha. Just Google it, and you can read all of the account. I don't have time to describe in detail, but these are brothers and sisters. These are people that are redeemed by the same Christ that has redeemed us, and they worship at the evangelical church that's in Doha, that meets there in, the, I believe it's in the embassy. Um, due to misunderstandings in, in, the, in the Qatari culture and just background, they, didn't, they, they couldn't comprehend why this, this Asian descent American couple would adopt three black babies. They, they just couldn't comprehend why anyone would do that. And then when Gloria died, they were, are just convinced that they murdered her. And since January the 15th, this couple has been in prison for the last eight months. And they were charged formally last week with murdering their eight-year-old daughter. And they await trial. Now, this couple who loves Christ adopted three children that otherwise have no hope, no future, no father, no mother, and were not focus on themselves, but focus on these three children and showing God's glory and adoption. And the gospel is adoption because God adopted us. And so this is a tragedy. By any way, an eight-year-old girl died unexpectedly, and no one knows exactly why at this point, and now you have the parents in prison awaiting trial. And so, yes, this is indeed a tragedy, and we need to pray for Matt and Grace that justice will be served because from all accounts, they're innocent. From all accounts, this couple is not guilty and did not murder their eight-year-old daughter. But that's not the main part of this story. You see, I've heard firsthand accounts. I was talking to one of our families, members of our church, that were in Doha not long ago. And we're seeing worship gathering much like this. And there are people in the worship gathering that had been in prison that were prisoners with Matt and with Grace. And they're giving reports that revival is breaking out in the prison because Matt and Grace are proclaiming the gospel to the other prisoners. And there's this lady that I heard about just this week that was testifying there in Doha of how she's thankful that she went to prison because otherwise she would have heard the gospel. And that the whole room was no dry eye 
as they were praising God and yet praying that God will give them strength to continue to boldly proclaim the gospel while in prison, accused wrongly. And they're starting Bible studies, like they've planted a church in prison. It's just absolutely astounding that the vision that Matt and Grace had for their lives, the thoughts that they had, the plan for their lives, was nothing compared to what God had planned for them. And they had no idea how hard it would be for them. My heart aches for them. I'm praying for them. But I'm thankful that they're in prison because the gospel is being proclaimed in an area where it would otherwise not be proclaimed. And I don't know what God has in store for me, but be it prison, then if that's what God has, and so be it as long as I can continue to proclaim the gospel and God has a vision for your life that is bigger than you could ever imagine for yourself. And Matt and Grace are experiencing this firsthand. And it's not about our comfort. It's about glorifying God by making and developing disciples. That is what we are about as a church. That's why we're here. And we must maintain purity in order for us to have any hope of impacting this city with the gospel. We must have relationships that are pure and meaningful if we have any hope of impacting for the gospel. This is what we're about. Whatever the cost, Jesus is worth it. It doesn't matter what he asks of us. He's the king. We get him. We get Jesus for eternity. Let us live for him with reckless abandon, whatever the cost. Let's pursue him. Let's be people that have purity and a passion for the king. Will you please pray with me? Father, we are humbled. We are in awe of your goodness, of your grace of the very gospel that you sent your son to reveal and to accomplish our redemption. Father, we can give ourselves to idols, to selfish tendencies and to our own interests and to wanting to be safe and secure, Father, but that is not what you have saved us for. You have saved us to go forth and proclaim your gospel and see lives transformed and experience the joy of knowing you. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for giving us this faith family. Father, we're in awe that you would save us and that you would then use us. Father, pray that we would be a people that are pure for you, for your glory, so that we can be effective in the mission that you gave to us. Father, I pray for anyone here in this room that does not know you, who has never repented and believed in the gospel, that they would understand that you love them and that they would turn away from their sin and turn to you with complete trust and be transformed from the inside out. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for your Son, for your Spirit that indwells us. Thank you that we're part of your kingdom. 
And we pray these things for your son's sake and in his name and for Jesus' glory. Amen.